Good morning. I'm Ivy Sprague, and this morning I'll be reading from the second chapter of Matthew, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Thank you, Ivy. It's that time of year, isn't it? Time for Christmas. Hope you're excited because it comes whether you like it or not, doesn't it? So I want to give you real quick an overview of our Christmas weekend schedule. So Christmas Eve is on a Friday this week. So just to give you a heads up as you're making your plans for that weekend, uh, we will have a Christmas Eve service here at the Playhouse at 6 p.m. on the 24th, Friday the 24th. Uh, and then, of course, the next day, Saturday, is Christmas Day. And then Sunday the 26th, there will be no Sunday service, all right? We're not going to have Sunday service. We're just going to let our Christmas Eve service kind of be our one weekend service. Give our volunteers a little break, um, a chance to just kind of enjoy the weekend with family. But then, of course, the first Sunday of January, the second, I believe it is, uh, we will be back on Sunday morning. So... Just be sure to mark that in your calendars. But more importantly, uh, who can you invite to Christmas Eve service this year? You know, it's, the, it's just a fact that a lot of times people who don't typically go to church are um, more interested in going to church on at times like Christmas Eve or Easter. And so maybe you've got a neighbor or a coworker or a family member, somebody who's, who, who maybe you've mentioned table church to them before, and uh, maybe they sound a little interested in it. Why not invite them? See if they'd like to come to our Christmas Eve service. It's going to be a great time of worship. A few years ago, um, more than a few really, time flies, my daughter is now 10 and this was when she was quite young, I took her to Walmart and we were there to get some Halloween candy. We walked into Walmart and she goes, Dad, look, it's Christmas. And I say, no, honey, it's Halloween. And she says, no, Daddy, it's Christmas. And sure enough, I look up and there's Santa Claus standing there next to the Halloween stuff. I'm going, what is this? Our Winter and fall holidays are running together. And so soon there'll just be one big blob of holidays. We won't even be able to differentiate anymore. But of course we know why this happens. It's because Christmas is big business. It's big to the tune of $450 billion a year. And so it's, no, it's little wonder why businesses want to push Christmas back earlier and earlier and earlier in order to get more perhaps shopping, most to buy more of their stuff. 
Um, which goes to show what we already know. Sometimes we lose sight of the true meaning of Christmas. I mean, if we're spending $450 billion on things that we don't really need, don't really want, then maybe it's time to remind ourselves of the true meaning of Christmas, and that's what we try to do every single Advent series. We want to remind ourselves about an infinite God who showed us an absurd kind of love by taking on flesh and becoming a baby in order to die for our sins. We're starting a new series today, our Advent series this year is called The Four Witnesses. We call it The Four Witnesses because we're going to look at Christmas from the angle of four, from four different angles. So today we're talking about Christmas from the perspective of Matthew. Next week we'll talk about Christmas from the perspective of Luke, and then we'll talk about it from the perspective of John, and then the fourth week of Advent, the fourth witness, is actually us. We're going to say, what does the coming of Jesus mean for us? So you might be wondering, well, wh- what about Mark? You said Matthew, Luke, John. Where's Mark? Well, Mark actually picks up his gospel when Jesus is already an adult. So uh, he doesn't have the birth narrative in there, but we're still going to learn a lot from the other three gospel writers. Today we turn to Matthew. You just heard Ivy read the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2, which contains the story of the Magi, a.k.a. the wise men, my homeboys. And I want to focus on this story today because, um, but before we do that, uh, we got to go back to chapter 1, give a little context for what Matthew's doing with the Magi, what he's trying to communicate to us. Matthew chapter 1 is packed with references to Jesus' Jewish heritage. Jesus was a Jewish man. Okay, he came from the nation of Israel. And Matthew chapter 1 is packed with references to this history. And uh, Tim Mackey, he's the founder of the Bible Project, he's got a good name for these moments where the New Testament kind of activates a memory of the Old Testament, like a reference back to the Old Testament. He calls them hyperlinks. Uh, You know, like today, if you click on a hyperlink, it takes you to some other part of the internet. Well, the New Testament is jam-packed with Old Testament hyperlinks that take us to just different moments in the Old Testament, different references in the Old Testament. And Matthew chapter 1 is just packed with these, these Old Testament hyperlinks. And so for a Jewish reader, you'd be reading this and it'd just be activating all sorts of memories and you know, uh, scriptures that you've memorized and read and studied and all these things as you go through just that one chapter. For example, take a look at verse 1, Matthew 1. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, so just that sentence is like dripping with Jewish significance. Messiah. Well, that's the word they use for the rescuer who the prophets foretold would come, that God would send this person who would come and defeat their enemies and restore them once again to their land. Son of David. Well, David was the greatest king in the history of Israel, and the prophets said that the Messiah would come from his line. He would be a son of David. Son of Abraham. Well, Abraham was the OG. He was the very first person in the nation of Israel. God called Abraham and said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. All the Jewish people were descendants of Abraham. And so Matthew is not wasting any time flashing Jesus's Jewish credentials before his readers. He wants you to know this. Jesus is a descendant of King David, just like the prophets foretold the Messiah would be. It's a hyperlink. And he then goes on to prove the fact that Jesus is a descendant of David by giving us his genealogy, not just back to David, but all the way back to Adam. And so you've got Jesus's genealogy laid out and 
he has more to show us, though, through this genealogy. He has even more to show us than the fact that Jesus was a son of David. Uh, look how he concludes the list. Matthew 1.17, it says, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Okay, that's another passage that's full of hyperlinks that we need to unpack for a second. It's important. But in order to understand it, I don't want to trigger anyone, but we're going to have to do a little bit of math, okay? So we got to do a little math. When you read the Bible, you'll notice how important the number seven is. There's sevens all over the place in the Bible. I don't know, just they sneak in in little ways all over the place talking about the number seven. And, and, and the number seven, the, the, the most significant example of the number seven, in fact, the, number, the seven that gives significance to all other sevens is the very first one in the creation account. When God creates uh, the universe in six days and then he rests on the seventh day. It says God rests and he blessed that day. He made it holy. And that's why now the seventh day of the week, for, for well, at least in the Old Testament, the seventh day in the week would be the Sabbath day. And then every seven years, they would have what's called a Sabbath year. Well, what's Sabbath? Sabbath is where you, you take a break, you rest from your work in order to be with God. Just as God dwelt within his creation on the seventh day, so the same God's people on the seventh day are supposed to dwell with God in worship. And so the seventh day of the week is a Sabbath day. The seventh year is a Sabbath year. That's where the, lie, the land would lie fallow. You wouldn't plant new crops. You would just kind of, that year is set aside for worship. And then every seven Sabbath years, you have the year of Jubilee, which is like the Sabbath year of all Sabbath years. Happens every 50 years. And on the year of Jubilee, all the debts would be forgiven in Israel and all the land would kind of go back to the original owners like a big reset button. And the idea is that if you had fallen into debt, if you had become poor, that everything would be reset again in the year of Jubilee. So seven was a big deal. Why? Because seven represents new creation. It represents God with his people as things should be. The seventh day of creation. Everything was as it should be. The culmination of God's plan for the universe. Everything the way it was supposed to originally be. That's what seven represents. Matthew says there were 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David to the exile. 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. Three sets of 14, also known as... Six sets of seven, which means Jesus was the start of the seventh seven. <laughs> Jesus is the start of the new creation, the new era that God was ushering in where God would be with his people once again. That's what Matthew is trying to unpack. He gives us a truckload of Jewish theology through a genealogy. Crazy, right? And so we're reading this, and, and it's like Matthew's got this neon blinking sign. It says, Messiah, Jewish Messiah, he has come. His name is Jesus, right? And believe it or not, the rest of Matthew chapter 1, there's seven verses after that one verse. Um, of course, that, I don't think that was meant because the verse numbers came a long way later, but kind of cool still. Uh, and those seven verses contain a whole bunch of hyperlinks to the Old Testament, just jam-packed. I mean, we could do a whole sermon series on Matthew chapter 1 if we wanted to. Now, all of that, all of the 
credentials, the Jewish credentials that Matthew's trying to show us as it applies to Jesus. He's the seventh seven, the beginning of the new creation, the, the moment has finally, the culmination of everything. All of that makes it rather startling when you open up chapter two and you read verse one and it talks about some guys called the magi. The word magi Matthew drops it in there. It's like a record scratch. You know, like everyone just kind of pauses and goes, wait, huh? Like you're giving us all this significant Jewish information and all of a sudden you drop in these, these magi. Listen, the magi, they were considered diviners, astrologers, sorcerers, witchcraft, this kind of stuff. They would read the stars for signs of what was going on on earth. This is not the kind of activity your pastors would condone. And in fact, it's not the kind of activity that the scriptures condone and the things that these guys would do, divination and magic and sorcery, all that stuff is expressly forbidden in the Jewish scriptures. This is the stuff that pagans did, not the people of God. So magi had a bad reputation with the Jews, particularly at the time of Jesus. You guys may remember the story of the Exodus. God comes to Moses says, Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go. Moses is like, okay. So he goes to Pharaoh. Hey, Pharaoh, God says let his people go. Pharaoh's like, no, I'm not going to. And so then there's this whole face-off between Moses and Pharaoh. And in fact, God gives Moses the ability to do kind of some miracles. And so Pharaoh's like, oh, yeah, well, I got this. He goes to get his, his magicians, and they go face off with Moses, and they're doing their magic tricks, and Moses is doing his miracles, and they like turn a, a staff into a snake, and then they turn theirs into snakes, but Moses' staff snake eats their snakes, and, I mean, it's just kind of crazy. But you know what they call those guys? They're called magi. Like, these guys are bad. They are oppressors of God's people. They're against everything good. They're the oppressors. They're captivators. They're the epitome of all that was evil. Insulters of God. Okay, this isn't Harry Potter. This is Voldemort. Like the bad wizard. One of the best arguments, I think, of the Bible's truthfulness is the way it kind of sticks its foot in its mouth. Like the Bible all over the place says stuff that you wouldn't say if you were making it up. Like if, if you're Matthew and you're, and you're a Jew and you're trying to write to a group of Jews to convince them that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, you don't have him fraternizing with Magi, with a bunch of Persian sorcerers. You know, that's not how you run a political campaign. You try to cover up all those kinds of moments. You don't just print them there for all the eternity. And yet that's what the Bible does all the time. The Magi are some of the last people you'd expect to see worshiping Jesus they didn't worship the God of the Jews. They were doing what we would today call witchcraft. And yet, they came and worshiped him. Look, here's what Matthew's telling us. There are no prerequisites for coming to Jesus. There are no prerequisites for coming to Jesus. Look, maybe you read Matthew chapter 1, and you don't catch all those hyperlinks, all those little references, subtle nuances going on to the Old Testament. Maybe you don't catch all that stuff. That's okay. Because you know what? In chapter 2, a bunch of random Persian sorcerers show up at Jesus' doorstep. Those guys weren't exactly doing Bible studies at home. Anyone can come. There are no prerequisites. 
in high school, there were some courses you had to take before you could take another course. If you want to take Algebra 2, first, you got to take Algebra 1. That's prerequisite. If you want to get here, you got to do this first. You got to know these things. You got to be able to talk this talk. You got to be able to do this if you're going to get there. But there are no prerequisites for coming to Jesus. There's nothing you have to know. There's nothing you got to do first. You don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to act a certain way. You know, I'm a guy, I love to dig into the historical context of the Bible. I love to kind of study the language and I try to bring some of that to my sermons. Hopefully that kind of thing helps, right? When, when I'm trying to ex- clarify who God is and what the scriptures are saying to us. But sometimes I worry that if we're not careful, we can make it seem like you need a seminary degree before you can really come to Jesus. But then Matthew comes along and he drops these magi in the middle of the story and shows us there's no prerequisites for coming to Jesus. You don't need any of that stuff. You don't have to know anything beforehand. You don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to dress a certain way or act a certain way because heaven knows the magi, they didn't fall into that category. It's the last person they would have expected. And yet, they waltzed right past the priests in Jerusalem on their way to Jesus. It's amazing. It says this, They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are the gifts you would give to a king. So here's what's remarkable about this story. I don't think Matthew is telling us that it's okay to practice sorcery or divination. Those, I don't think he's condoning those behaviors, those practices. I'm not sure. That, I don't think that's what's happening. I think what he's saying is that God is bigger than that stuff. That God will reach out through the stars and touch the hearts of these magi. Here at Table Church, one of our core values is to pursue God. We talk about it all the time. Pursue, pursue God, create belonging, do justice, make disciples. That's what we exist to do. But did you know that God is pursuing you? In fact, if we were to sum up the story of Christmas, it would simply be the story of God's relentless pursuit of his people. That's what Christmas is. That's what Advent reminds us of. Some people say God is hard to find, but I think it's more often the case that we just don't want to be found. Because God is pursuing you, the question is, what will you do when he finds you? There's an author named David Bennett. He was a pretty fierce atheist, agnostic, had a vendetta against Christians. He was an activist. And uh, he was in a bar one night, and he came across an old acquaintance. And they started talking. Over the course of their conversation, it became clear that this girl had become a Christian. And eventually, she asks David, she says, can I pray over you? And he reluctantly agrees. Here's what he says. He says, as Madeline laid her hands on me and prayed, the bustle of the pub faded away. I entered into a stillness, a peace. Soon, I felt a soft tingling on the crown of my head that slowly intensified as if someone were pouring oil over me. The warm sensation ran down my entire body like a current of water. It was unlike anything I'd ever felt before. In a moment, in that experience so totally outside me, so totally unasked for, Everything turned upside down in my mind. All my searching in religion, in relationships, in atheism, none of it compared with this love coursing through me like electricity. For the first time, I knew God was real and that he loved me. This changes everything. 
I realized. As they continued to pray together, he says that, that experience, that feeling that he had just intensified and grew, grew stronger. He was overwhelmed with the love of God in a way he couldn't explain right there in a pub in Sydney, Australia. God reached out and found him. And as the prayer went on, he could sense in his heart God pressing a question upon him. And the question was, do you want me? And he wouldn't answer the question. And so God would ask it again a little bit louder in his heart. Do you want me? And again, he, he didn't want to answer the question. He spent so long running from God. Do you want me? And then finally, a fourth time, so loud he couldn't ignore it. Do you want me? And he finally said, yes, God, I do want you. That was the night that God found him. This is what Matthew is trying to tell us. God is pursuing us. He's pursuing us. And God doesn't care about cultural boundaries or what religious people think is right. God will use the most unexpected means to bring people to himself. For a devout Jew, he'll give you Matthew chapter 1. Okay, he'll show you how Jesus is the promised Messiah, the seventh seven, all these things. For a devout Jew, you'll have that. But maybe you're not in that category. Maybe you don't quite, maybe none of that really means much to you. Okay, well, over here, he'll reach out through the stars to a bunch of Persian sorcerers. I mean, God will find, he's pursuing his people. He is out to find you. The question is, do you want to be found? Now, you might be thinking, look, I've never had an experience like David Bennett's, right? That might be kind of cool for God to just come down and like, boom, sweep you off your feet. That would be cool, wouldn't it? But maybe you've never had anything particularly like that. Well, first of all, I would say, have you tried? Have you welcomed God into your life? Have you, have you opened your heart to him yet? Because you never know, right? But if you haven't had that, it doesn't mean that God isn't pursuing you. It says in the Bible, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. See, God is relentlessly pursuing you. God gave himself for you. That's what we remember at Advent. We remember a God who came to us. Another author named Joshua Ryan Butler uh, shares about some friends of his named Jim and Sarah. Jim and Sarah adopted a teenage girl named Misha. When Misha came into their home, I'm sorry, they didn't adopt her. They were foster parents. When they welcomed Misha into their home, um, you know, things were going pretty well at first kind of a honeymoon phase, but eventually things changed and uh, Misha would scream and throw things at Sarah particularly. She would bite her and hit her and try to hurt her and all these things, but she would act perfectly normal around the father, around Jim. And um, one night they knew they needed a break and so they invited a, a, a babysitter over and they were a little torn. I mean, should we leave Misha? We're not sure if she's ready, um, but yeah, we're, we're gonna give it a try. And so they went out on their date and they came home, and uh, the babysitter met them at the door, said it was, it was great. I mean, she's fine. She's up in her bed sleeping. I felt, oh, thank you, Lord. It went well. They went upstairs to get ready for bed. When they entered their, be their bathroom, they discovered that Misha had taken lipstick and had written expletives all over the wall, cursing out Sarah. And it said, bleep you, mom. Blippity blip, mom. That kind of stuff. Jim's heart immediately sank. Maybe they shouldn't have gone, he thought. Maybe Misha wasn't ready for them to leave. How is Sarah going to take this? Surely this will crush her. To his surprise, Sarah started laughing. 
Her laughing grew harder and louder, and soon it was accompanied by tears. And tears of joy were streaming down her face. Confused, Jim says, why are you laughing? And between sobs of joy, she said, she called me mom. Look, maybe you look back on your life and you think there's no way God could forgive me. There's no way God would welcome me. There's no way God wants anything to do with me. Maybe you think to yourself, I'm not a God person. I'm not a church person. I'm not a religious person. I don't know all this stuff. If that's you, I hope you understand the point of my sermon today is precisely for you. It's precisely for that sort of position. There are no prerequisites for coming to Jesus. The only prerequisite for God's love is that God made you, and you've already checked that box whether you like it or not. And whether it's Sarah crying tears of joy when she was finally called mom, or it's the prodigal son's father running to him when he finally sees his son appear on the horizon. These stories remind us of the Bible's core conviction. The father's love for you is extravagant. It's absurd. It's beyond anything you can comprehend. And God will reach down to find you. God is pursuing you. This is what we reflect on and remember, we're reminded of in Advent. Just like he reached down through the stars to those magi, God is pursuing you. And I don't care what you've done or how far you've wandered. God's heart is overflowing with joy toward anyone that calls him father. Matthew reminds us of a God whose love for us knows no boundaries, has no prerequisites, does not run out, is freely given to all, to the strictest of the religious people, to the pagan sorcerers, to the least and to the last and to the healthy and to the sick and to the haves and the have-nots. God's love is for everyone. And if you're one of those who just doesn't think of themselves as a very godly person, a very religious person, well, then God has you precisely where he wants you. God is pursuing you this morning. God has pursued you across the chasm of space and time. And God has brought you within earshot of this sermon right now. God is telling you how much he loves you and that you can't run far enough to ever escape it. God loves you. And so the best way to celebrate Christmas is not with movies or gifts or trees. The best way to celebrate Christmas is to accept the free gift of love that God offers us in Jesus Christ. And so if you haven't done that, and if you are hearing this, I don't care if you're in this room at the Playhouse or if you're online or if you're hearing this on a podcast, who knows when. I want you to open your heart to God and say, God, I'm willing to be found. Would you find me? Would you take me? Would you close your eyes with me and pray? Lord, we can't go through Christmas without inviting people to the way of Jesus. And that's what I want to do right now. And so, Holy Spirit, I invite you to come and to do something in the heart of someone here. Something unforgettable and unmistakable. Something like what you did in David Bennett's life. Something where they would say something happened in that room. Something that was beyond me. I met God. God found me. God reached down and found me. And so if that's you today and you're here or you're watching online, I want to invite you to just check the box in your connection card or reach out to us on email or do anything to let us know that, look, I want to follow Jesus. I'm done running. I'm done hiding. I want to be found. I want God.
and we'll walk alongside you with that. So Holy Spirit, we come to you now and we, we open our hearts before you and we say, would you find us? And for that one person here today, or whoever many it is, God, would you just corner them and not let them leave until they know, not in their heads, not in their hearts, but in their guts, how much you love them. And then all the stuff that they're thinking about and all the stuff from their past that they think, well, that makes me, that disqualifies me. Lord, that you just take that right now and you'd help them to see on your face that there's nothing but love in your eyes for them. That you would cross heaven and earth once again, that you would that you'd go back to the diaper stage once again, if that's what it meant, Lord, that you would do anything, and you have done anything, and you have done everything for them. Because you're a God who has a love that goes beyond comprehension, that defies our logic, that doesn't make sense, that would ultimately lead you to a cross, that you would be nailed upon as you bore our sins. And if that doesn't just scream love, acceptance. Lord, nothing does. And Christmas points us to that moment on the cross and it points us beyond that moment to the the moment of resurrection, Lord, where you would rise in victory so that those sins that we think about, that we carry, God, that they can just be decimated in our lives, that we don't have to carry them anymore because you are not only good and loving, but all powerful. And so we worship you and honor you today as our Lord and Savior. We pray all these things In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you stand and sing with us one more time?